When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the All Stats Aren't We review of the Southampton away game and a preview of the Chelsea home game. I'm Darren Driver, the Jesse Marsh game management of the podcast. I've presented podcasts on lots of hot days and I know exactly what I'm doing, you guys. And I'm here with the substitute who's too late to make an impact. I've brought him in when the game's already gone. It's John McKenzie. John, how you doing, brother? Hello, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Do you know what my wife said to me today? I do not. She said, if you ever leave me, it will be for John. What do you think of that? Well, I'm flattered. And uh, yeah, <laughs> if if I'm ever left for, it will be for Lauren. Wait, I'm not sure if that works, but you get the, you get the gist. I do, I do get the gist. I do get the gist. Uh, how's, how's things been, John? You've been watching lots of football recently? I've been watching too much football, if anything, but life is going well. And it's very busy and it's very, I don't know, it's good. Life is good. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, so, yeah, so you've been doing lots of different bits and pieces um, and not been as, not been around the old stats world as much. Um, you've been dead busy with TIFO and the Athletic and stuff. So how, how are you finding um, not, not being as connected to Leeds United as you once were? That must be nice. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's it's funny doing this podcast because previously I was super prepared for the podcast. I was clued in. I knew exactly what had happened. And now I'm working weekends. I am, as many people know, not entirely enamoured by the Jesse Marsh School of Football. And so it's been interesting to sort of watch it with a little bit more distance than usual. And yeah, hopefully that means that I'm able to comment critically without being biased against but um i guess we'll let the listeners be determined about that but it's a it's a funny one isn't it because supporting a football club is one of those things that you do that doesn't really allow you much space for aesthetic preference right Mm. if you Mm. say you yourself you're a big fan of bruce springsteen um and bruce springsteen has a very specific genre and and you have an expectation of him producing certain things right yep if Bruce, Spring, if Bruce Springsteen became a metal artist overnight, I suspect that you would change your attitude to his music, right? And I feel as the same has sort of happened for me with with moving from Marcelo Bielsa to Jesse Marsh. It's a, a very big genre shift, and I'm struggling to enjoy it as much as I expected. So, yeah, I... I obviously still want Leeds to win and I still want things to succeed for for Leeds, but at least at the aesthetic level, it's a a struggle. So that's the caveat that I will give. Yeah, and I I kind of agree with that. If you you want to use the musical, uh, like the musical analogy, for most of my life, Leeds have played some sort of pretty turgid bollocks. uh, And then for about three years, they played this wonderful harmonious lovely stuff that I wanted to see and hear and now it feels that there's a bit of a regression to the mean really in terms of what I expect as a Leeds fan so that's kind of how I'm trying to to view it um, and it's not that that Marsh Marsh's football doesn't have some merits because clearly it does um, but 
yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm sort of with you uh, on on that one, um, which does make it a yeah an interesting thought experiment to try and review this stuff um, in a kind of objective, in an objective way, which still sounds like I'm a Leeds fan, which is a bit, but it's a real kind of it's a real needle to try and thread. Anyway, so um, I don't think there's any news, is there? Other than other than that, I don't think there's anything that we need to really reflect on. I think we we'll just get straight to talking about the the Southampton game from the weekend. So. John, you didn't watch the game live, right? Yeah, I was working that day and I did on the whistle reports tactical reviews for both the morning, well, the, the first game, I guess it was 12.30 and then the evening game as well. So I didn't have time to watch it live. I was sort of semi-following it whilst doing other things. Um, and yeah, it's it's been a weird experience watching it back because the 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 sort of indirect narrative that I picked up from a lot of people during the game didn't really seem to match up to a lot of what I saw when I was watching it back. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we'll have some interesting discussions about this game. We certainly will. We certainly will. So today we will be reviewing the Southampton game from last weekend and we'll be previewing the Chelsea game. So, as as is customary, um, we'll start with the interrogation or the discussion, as we like to call it when there are just the two of us on. Um, so we shall get to that now. So, question one. In the first half, it was a fairly even game. Both teams really cancelled each other out. There was very little quality on display. There were lots of sort of mini transitions, but nobody was really able to get much of a foothold. If there were chances, Leeds made a couple, but and Southampton got into a couple of threatened areas, but without really making anything. Second half, Leeds got on top for the first 15 minutes, probably, and counter-pressed fairly well in that in that spell, I think, and scored twice. And then Southampton seemed to change their approach around the water break in the second half. So when you watched it, John, what did you see tactically changing in the way that Southampton approached the game and the way Leeds approached the game in that spell when Southampton moved to be the dominant team? Yeah, I agree with your first half assessment. Like it's two teams who both want to play transitional football. It means that neither team is particularly bothered if they lose the ball and that just ends up becoming a bit of a, of a tennis game and yeah both teams are just going to try and make the most of those moments that fall to them in that sort of uh, approach and that was largely the first half the second half I think the difference was is that Leeds scored quite early and put a little bit of pressure on Southampton to then come out a bit more and uh, and try and get the goal um, I think a lot of people have been talking to me about like moments or periods of dominance in this game so the idea that Leeds were, were sort of dominating for the first part of the second half and then Southampton dominating for the second part of the second half and weirdly watching it back I didn't really feel that way I, I felt that Leeds did counter press high and were able to cause problems in that way in the beginning of the second half and in the second part of the second half they stopped doing that so much which allowed Southampton to get the ball further forward down the field but in both cases I wouldn't probably describe it as dominating maybe that's because I think of domination in terms of possession um, I, I felt as though the difference was is that Leeds were able to control the first half of the second half more because of their high press um, rather than a counter press per se but they were able to just keep Southampton at arm's length halfway through after the after the um, the drinks break as you mentioned um, Southampton do change their system they do push a little bit higher um, they change to a 4-2-2-2 um, but I felt as though the difference was is that Leeds were a bit more passive in their high press uh, and as a result of that Southampton were able to get further forward and, and cause more problems in that sense so I think this is something we'll see of Jesse Marsh's approach that you're either pressing high and destabilizing oppositions who can actually cause you problems on the one hand or on the other hand sitting a little bit deeper and inviting pressure and trying to absorb it and in this case it didn't really work mm. yeah I, I think maybe saying that, that the team on top had momentum in the game rather than like control or, or I think that might be a better way of putting it um it seemed to it seemed to flow with momentum I think this is an interesting point though because I agree with you I think last week Wolves at the start of the second half did change their approach and that had quite a big impact on on the rest of that game. But in this game, I didn't feel like it was really what Southampton did that, that was the primary difference. I felt it was what Leeds did, like you say, in terms of dropping off the press. And it raised an interesting question to me because there was a point as well after Southampton scored the first goal where Leeds went to five at the back, went to a five at the back system um, with Jack Harrison at the left wing back role. Um, so I guess the question which comes to me really, and, and, and I think it's interesting for us to discuss, is why stop doing what's got you to 2-0 in the game at that point in the game why not keep doing the thing that's bringing you success 
Mm. It's a good question, and it's probably one that I don't really know the answer to beyond saying something like it's hard work pressing high for the whole game. Um, and again, this is the problem of having a system which doesn't really have a sense of possessional um, control because as we always talk about with, with teams like, I use the cliche, Pep Guardiola's um, Manchester City, what they do is they control games through keeping the ball and obviously that allows you to influence the tempo a little bit more but when you're playing the Marsh system the issue is that you, you sort of control the game by being proactive rather than being passive and, and holding the ball in that sense and yeah it's hard to see how you can do that for a full 90 minutes and we've seen it in two games now right where as you say the Wolves game that that period of 20 minutes of of quote-unquote dominance from Wolves was all about them generating space and making the counter press uh, sorry the, I should say the high press there less effective in this game it, it just sort of felt as though Jesse Marsh decided that he didn't want his high press to be as aggressive um, because they were two up, I suppose, and you want to sort of manage your players' uh, fitness levels. And so dropped off. And as a result, Southampton sort of got the ball into more advanced areas and and that, that high press wasn't able to keep Southampton at arm's length, as I said. Mm. And it was the hottest day of the year as well. So I think there is probably some logic in in pressing hard for 65 minutes or 70 minutes, getting two and up and then dropping off. But I think I think it, it definitely had a big impact on the game. The other thing to say that I was just going to say, the other thing to say is that by pressing high, you always leave yourself exposed to the counter-attack. Um, and I think that's probably mm. a thought that, that the management team have had, that if you continue to be relentless in your, in your attempt to keep the opposition in their half, you are going to eventually seed some sort of dangerous transitional mm. moment the other way so I suppose that the, the risk that was taken was well if we sit deeper absorb pressure then we're not going to be as dangerous as we are going forward but we might be a little bit more solid at the back and it obviously didn't turn out to be the case um, so yeah again I think maybe it's going to be something that we see a lot happening this season I think it's just so hard for me as as a tactical analyst to view these kind of games because they're just so then such an outlier approach it's such an outlier approach to the game that you know you're just constantly generating chaotic moments and the idea is is that if you are better at those chaotic moments than the opposition then you will hope that some of them in the most times they'll fall your way but in this instance when you have two teams that play that way all that's happened is one team's taken their chaotic moments and the other team's taken theirs and it's ended up in a draw so it's kind of hard to really come away with any sort of real conclusions i don't think yeah because it becomes wildly event driven, I guess, and and that's that's where we ended up. So we did have a lot of questions about what changed. So just to just to summarise, because there's quite a lot there, what seemed to change is that Leeds after going two 0 up seemed to to drop off. Southampton pushed a little bit higher up the pitch. Their counter counter press came more into effect. They got the momentum, scored the two goals. I think I think it's probably as as simple as that in terms of in terms of what happened, although there were shape changes from a three five two to a four triple two for Southampton. Leeds went from a four triple two, four two three one to a to a five at the back system and then reverted to the four triple two at the end. Um anyway, so one thing I've noticed, John, and I'm I'm this is something I'm quite concerned about, is that Basically, in, in the two games so far, we've conceded a version of the same goal three game three times in two games, um, where a ball is switched from our right hand side to a player overloading our left due to us all moving to the ball side. Um, so, is this a case of opponents scare quotes working us out? And if so, is it worrying that it's happened so quickly? I actually don't think that this is quote-unquote a system problem mm -hmm. um, this is the sort of goal that we've seen Manchester United concede twice against Brighton and once yeah. against Brentford and the issue I think is this that we're bad at defending in def in transitional moments like that and the problem is is that someone commits forward and then suddenly you have this situation where there's a space at the back and everyone shifts across and it means that you run out of defenders eventually so I think if you watch the goal back you'll see that Robin Cock jumps in when when Southampton are going through. That means that then Diego Llorente has to come across, cover Cox space, and then Pascal Strout goes across and covers the Llorente space. And then you just have the, the player at the back post. I think it's Joe Rebo, is it? And and 
he, he just ends up in a lot of space. And we've seen that happen with Manchester United a few times now. And that's, again, because you're, you're seeing these transitional moments where because one player is committing forward and not winning the challenge, you then end up essentially with one fewer defender. And so everyone shifts across and it can mean that the opposition just get into space off the back of the of the the ball side, uh, the ball far, I should say, um, fullback. Yeah. Ball far. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it has happened a lot in the first two games. So, so you are you saying that that in your view this is purely down to like individual players making individual mistakes in the moment, and that's what causes the system problem? Yeah, I mean, when I say a system problem, I guess I mean for me the the problem with this system is that if you switch the ball quickly from one side to the other, you can get players isolated against fullbacks. But I don't think that's what happened here. I think it was, I mean, maybe it is a system problem, but for me, I see it happening with a lot of different systems, which is when an opposition are driving and have got in behind that that line of the. The, the midfield you end up in this situation which you can see where where everyone shifts across and because someone doesn't make the tackle suddenly you're you're exposed in in, in the back area there um that's for me what's more worrying about that is the fact that Leeds aren't necessarily just accepting that their system is going to have a weakness which is what i think the narrow counter-pressing system does and that's more a, a more I don't want to say systemic but a more um, ingrained problem with the way that they are defending those transitions so that's bad defending for me rather than the natural outcome of having a particular structure if that makes sense mm, no no it does it does it it definitely does um, okay something which was um, discussed a lot at the weekend and since was was um, the subs and the lack of substitutions made in the game and Daniel Winter sent out sent in a good question about this so he asked did we just get lucky against Wolves in that um, Marsh let Wolves dominate the second half for the guts of 20 minutes before making a change is the only difference that Southampton scored um, and Marsh got credit for the click sub when Wolves could feasibly have scored in the time that he did nothing so I suppose comparing and contrasting the game management the substitutions in the two games how do you see that yeah, I think a lot of the interpretation of this depends on whether or not you think that the reason why Leeds dropped off their high press was to do with the fact that they got tired. Mm. And I'm not convinced that that's necessarily true. Um, and the reason why I'm not convinced that isn't necessarily true is that Jesse Marsh didn't make the substitutions. Um, so it felt to me as though that decision after the 70th minute to, to drop a little bit deeper and not be quite so aggressive in the forward press. Um, it just seemed to me that it, he had decided that we can ride this 2-0 win and and sort of manage our players' fitness a little bit more through that. Obviously, it didn't work um, in, in the long run, but I think, you know, Southampton didn't create a huge amount of chances, so he, he'll probably look back on that and say, well, I, I feel as though we were just unlucky that Sekumara plays one of the balls of his life to, into Carl Walker Peters for the um, for the equaliser. Um, yes, I, with with respect to the Wolves game, I think that again, it's 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 a sort of funny one. I do think that if Leeds had conceded in that period, as as you said, then Wolves probably go on to win that game, and they they are sort of lucky insofar as they are able to bring on Mateus Click and and actually play a, a fairly non marsh ball approach for a little bit just taking the sting out of the game and managing possession a little bit more in higher areas not not in a possessional sense but more in a get the ball to a player further forward and um and allow him to take the sting out of the game in in terms of hold up play yeah the ball was sticking with click in a way that it hadn't previously in the half yet yeah yeah exactly so it with respect to the wolves game i kind of feel as though there was there was a solution that was offered there. Yes, the goal could have come any time in those 20 minutes and probably would have been deserved, but it didn't. And I, I suppose on the balance of play, like the two games felt to me as though Wolves should have won the first game. And yeah, maybe Leeds were a little bit unlucky to not carry a 2-0 win through uh, in the second game and it sort of balances out. But again, I'm going to end up saying that this is the problem with the approach that Leeds are taking at the moment is that a lot of it feels just like rolling a dice and you're generating conditions where in theory you should be the team who are better at benefiting from those chaotic situations but you're also creating chaotic situations which means you do lose a bit of control and so it's hard to sort of get annoyed when when that doesn't work out and get annoyed when 
the the system then has nothing to offer when you decide that you want to try and sit mm-hmm. on a two goal lead as you said before like the only solution seems to be to carry on doing what we're doing already which becomes very mm-hmm. tiring and also is chaotic so could easily go the wrong way as well mm. and because we were sitting relatively deeper against Southampton even having an out ball which Click provided in the first game mightn't necessarily have helped because Southampton had pushed that bit higher up the pitch and were playing quite compact themselves and um, counter-pressing in the middle third particularly quite well. Um, okay, uh, let's think about our build-up then. So we had a question from Toby Pedersen which said it seemed like Adams drifted into the right-back spot for a while in um, build-up play in, in the first half. Have you got any thoughts or comments on that? And I, I guess really I'm I'm interested to know how you're viewing the Leeds build-up more generally because I think we have seen both Adams and Rocker dropping into the full-back areas to pick up possession and start from there in the two games. So how, how are you seeing uh, Leeds build-up at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I would describe yeah. the build-up as attempting to play penetrative central passes into the tens. Um, and so any build-up... It seems weird calling it build-up, but any build-up tends to be moving the ball around the back four in an attempt to find one of those passes. Now, occasionally it may go into the fullbacks and they may try and get the ball into one of those tens from there, but most of the time it seems to be that the idea is you give it to the to the centre-backs who will um, who will who will uh, do that. Obviously, dropping out your centre midfielders into the back line then just allows you what's called a numerical superiority. So it gives you an extra player in that line and allows you theoretically the ability to possess the ball for better and longer. But I don't think that that is about anything other than just giving yourself a little bit more space in front of the centre backs to then get those penetrative passes through. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, just just one really, which is that I think that the other function that it serves is is it does allow us to d- generate some width in the middle and higher thirds uh, because it allows the fullbacks to push up. But that that was my only that was my only thought about it really. Mm. Yeah, I haven't really focused too much on the fullbacks, but in my experience of Red Bull tactics, like the fullbacks are basically there as outlets. Like you don't really want to use them unless you have to, um, and. And that's when you're under pressure and then you can play the ball to them. And again, the idea is for them to get the ball into into that sort of zone between the centre-backs and the centre-midfielders on the opposite side. Um, I do think that there's probably slight differences between this approach and classic Red Bull football. Um, but uh, yeah, I haven't really focused on it enough to, to really work them out. I know, I know that we did go down the wide areas in the forward spaces a little bit more than you might expect in some of the games, but... I think that's something that we'll see as the season wears on. It's something I noticed in the stadium against Wolves more than I noticed um, in in the in the Southampton game, to be honest. But do you think that that was after Click came on? No, no, it was definitely in the first half as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, particularly trying to find Christensen quite high up and wide um, in in the first half, particularly. Yeah. But yeah, just it's inter- interesting thing to look out for how that develops over the course of the season. I think. Yeah. But again, like the the general idea is that you are, as you said, that you're right that when you drop a player into that fullback space, you can push your fullback up. But again, the idea is that those fullbacks are rather than sort of hitting bylines and then cro- pulling it back, it's still crossing the ball into central spaces, right? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, it's not it's not like when we were making pretty triangles behind the fullback and that it's not that sort mm-hmm. of thing. It's crossing from thirty yards from the byline um, into into central areas, as you as you as you say for sure. So it's quite interesting. Um, and another interesting thing to talk about, I think, is Pascal Strauch at left back, um, because I think that. The general consensus that I've seen online about the Wolves game was that he did quite well, but the voices around me in the stadium during the game were not saying that. Um, And then I think against Southampton, he had another mixed afternoon. Um, And yeah, I think it's it's an interesting... Um, exposure of Pascal's strengths and weaknesses when he when he plays in, in, in the fullback position. So I'm interested to hear, given that we are both big fans of Pascal Strauch, particularly as a as a um as a centre back and, and particularly in a three. I'm interested to to hear how you think he's doing in, in the left back role in, in this in this system. Yeah. I yeah. mean part of me finds it quite sad because I think he's arguably our best centre-back at the moment and to see him used as a makeshift left-back is uh, not what we envisaged a couple of seasons ago but just the usual caveats that 
as we've said already, like a Jesse Marsh system doesn't use flying wingbacks per se. It's not about having huge amounts of progression in the wide areas. Uh, and so you can play, I, s- I suppose, less mobile slash centre-backs in those positions. Like um, Rasmus Christensen, you could see as an outside centre-back in a back three, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's the, the, the general idea is that, as we've said, the weak points of a of a Jesse Marsh system are going to be in those fullback areas because you are getting so narrow in order to benefit the counter press and the high press in those areas and so you need to have someone who is defensively able in those moments with the acceptance that you're going to be doing a lot of 1v1 defending in space and so you can be made to look a little bit silly at times on a yeah, I mean, Rasmus Christensen was made to look a little bit silly a few times in, in the game against Southampton as well. So it's not what I necessarily want to see because I don't think it, it benefits his profile. I don't think that the skill set that he has really is comes to the fore there. But I suppose in the long run, the question is like, what do we what do we see happening there once Junior Firpo is available again? for the two weeks of uh, every month every three months I should say where he's available whether or not we see Pascal being pushed into the middle I suspect probably not because I think that as we've said the centre-backs in a Jesse Marsh system are all about like central passing and um, I'm reliably informed that Diego Llorente is a very good central passer Um, I'm yet to see it too much in this system but uh, and incidentally I think the the player who we've seen it do best is Luke do that best is Luke Ayling but um yeah I I think Pascal's fine um but he's just fine but I think that's all he needs to be really yeah there are, there are a couple of moments when when he's needed to be quite agile um in maybe short interplay or when he's needed to turn quickly when when that's when that kind of mobility stuff that you wouldn't expect him to have for the size he is and for the profile of player he is has, has been exposed and mm. well, it's transitional defending as we've talked about, and that's, that is just not his strength. Um, so yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think that, that he's going to be in situations where if the player gets in behind him, it's, it's sort of curtains for him in terms of having a chance of getting back. But um, yeah, yeah, like you, I just hope that that once Junior, you know, if if Junior Furpo comes back and manages to get a decent running the team that we do manage to see Pascal back in the centre back position and Urente or Cock dropped um to the to the bench to make way for that. But I suspect that won't happen because I think the seniority uh, in the centre backs might come to the fore um there. So anyway, it'd be interesting to see. So anyway, that concludes our review of the Southampton game. That was a, an interesting chat, John. Um just before we move on to the preview, I just want to plug our new Patreon, um, which Hobbsy's putting some really good videos up and we're recording a podcast about the under twenty ones next week. Um so if you want to find out what we're doing on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com forward slash ASAW. Okay. Onto the Southampton preview. Uh, onto the Chelsea preview, even. <laughs> How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Oh, 
Okay, so on to the Chelsea preview. John, uh, what has Chelsea's transfer business been like over the There's been a weird window for them, really, I suppose, because it feels as though they haven't made a huge amount of moves, but they've been linked with everyone, right? Um, So they brought in... Kaladu Koulibaly, who is a centre back, probably the probably the best centre back in Serie A for the last ten years or so. Um, they've brought him in to replace a couple of centre backs that they've lost. Uh, they've also brought in Mark Kukurea, who we know very well from his time in Brighton and his flowing long locks. Uh, but Kukurea is a player who can play as an outside centre back and also as a wing back as well. So you would expect him to to sort of cover both of those positions for them there. Um, they've also brought in Carney Chuck Wemeka from Aston Villa, who we we knew as an exciting young prospect. So um, I guess we won't see much of him at this point, but um, they they are still bringing in exciting young players. Uh, and then Raheem Sterling brought in from um, from Manchester City as well. Obviously, there's other links. So um, Cesare Casade is a player who plays for Inter. I don't know much about him, but they've been strongly linked this week to him uh, and then the other player who is in the news is um, Wesley Fofana of, of Leicester um, there's also a few players that have come back from loans who I suppose could be interesting so Conor Gallagher we've seen play a little bit and then Armando Broya as well who um, has caused Leeds problems on occasion as well so they still have those young players coming in um, but they have a strong squad anyway so um, I, I suspect that but for maybe a few um, vanity signings later in the window, they they won't be looking too much different uh, by the end of the window. Mm. And um, your Twitter feed, it would be fair to say, has been ablaze with Tuchel takes these last uh, couple <laughs> of weeks, John. Um, so what do you make of this Chelsea team? What are they good at? What are they bad at? What What is their general pattern of play? Yeah, I did take a bit of a beating on Twitter for asking a question about Thomas Tuchel's tactics. Um, to to sort of expand on that, so I said I couldn't really think of anything. That was that was an honest concession. Uh, I don't claim to be an expert on Tuchel. I did enjoy his team when they were playing in Borussia Dortmund, uh, but since then I've not really seen a huge amount of interesting stuff from from Tuchel. And I think the position that I've landed mm. on is that Thomas Tuchel is a very good manager out of possession, uh, and I think that's a it's it's worth thinking about that what that means for a little bit because I think managers who are good out of possession generally tend to be good reactive managers so they're able to read what the opposition are trying to do and then they're able to stop them from doing it and we had a saying when I was working in academia that it's, it's all well and good being able to take down a position but the the best people are the people who can set up positions of their own and I think the same applies to Thomas Tuchel in the sense that I like a lot of what I see in terms of the off-ball stuff so we saw him play against Spurs this week and they basically nullified Spurs' system, which I think is impressive. But in terms of the on-ball stuff and the and what they're doing with the ball, I think there's problems there. I think Tuchel is very good at building possession through the first and second third, but then when they get to the final third, there's often a lack of, of creativity there. Um, I think maybe the way that I would describe Thomas Tuchel's possession stuff is like Antonio Conte if Antonio Conte thought about build-up like Pep Guardiola thinks about build-up so it's very patient build-up possession moving it to the final third but then not having enough really in terms of the the roots and the creativity to generate good chances Um, whereas I think that if he played Tuchel this is if he played more like Antonio Conte so Antonio Conte sort of sits his team deep in possession to bait the opposition forward and then create space in behind and then they go forward quickly through that front three of Kane Son and Kulisevsky and we know just how devastating they can be when they have space and speed on their hands. I think that Chelsea would be much more dangerous if they just approached their build-up like that so basically invited opposition's forward towards them generated space in behind and just went for it um so yeah that's what i think we've seen from chelsea whenever we've played them um i don't think we've generated huge amount of chances against chelsea but i also don't think they've generated a huge amount of chances against us under tuckle as well so yeah it'll be interesting to see whether or not that changes under i guess a more um standard jesse marsh system this time around Mm. Tell me how they nullified Spurs, uh, John. I'm interested in, in in specifically what they did to do that. Um, so yeah, give us give us a, a couple of minutes yeah. on that. Yeah. So for me, what they did so well was they recognised that the way that Spurs play is by 
baiting teams forward and then generating space in behind. So essentially what they did is they set up in a way to to largely like man for man at the back, um, so against the Spurs front front three and midfield. Um, and then they were, they were fairly zonal with their front two. So they set up in a what people call a, a sort of 3-5-2. But it's interesting because it's so similar to the sorts of things that Bielsa was doing with his man marking. But rather than being like Bielsa and having no flexibility really in terms of the marking responsibilities, it's a lot more structurally aware. And so you'll get the two central midfielders um, matching up against Spurs' two central midfielders. But if one of those central midfielders moves forward, then you can pass the player on as long as you're keeping your, your zone um, quiet. So Mason Mount was was um, up against Pierre-Emile Hoiberg, and Hoiberg was dropping into the back line to find space for himself because he was being man-marked. And sometimes Mason Mount would push him forward to Raheem Sterling, who was playing as one of the two strikers. Um, and they were a little bit more zonal. They were just sort of making sure that certain players got the ball uh, they weren't too worried about getting tight uh, and then Mason Mount was dropping deep and covering Kulisevsky who would then drop into the space left behind by Hoiberg um, and so there was a sort of structural element to it as well so there were man marking but there was a lot more structure to it um, they weren't being dragged out of position in the in the same way that you might see from Leeds um, but yeah essentially the front three were all being marked um, either Mount was on Kulisevsky or one of the back um, three would push forward onto Kulosevsky. Same was true with Son and um, uh, Reese James. So Reese James was tracking Son wherever he went, uh, and then one of the two centre backs, as one of the other centre backs, would track Harry Kane as well. So it was all about just allowing Spurs to make the passes that they want to make, but making sure that the players who were receiving those passes were were being marked. And so, I mean, to me, it it seemed pretty easy for Spurs, uh, for Chelsea. Sorry. No, let me say it again. To me, it seemed pretty easy for Spurs to actually get out of those sorts of man-marking problems in the way that we've seen that happen against Leeds, which is get your back three carrying the ball forward and trying to destabilise the opposition press um, and the man-marking system. But it wasn't happening. Like Eric Dyer isn't a player who wants to really get forward particularly, and so they were just uh, they were sitting the two zonal forwards on the outside centre-backs allowing Dyer to do whatever he wanted uh, and then when the balls were eventually being played forward they were just jumping on the player that was receiving the pass and just stopping them from mm. being able to build up so yeah it worked really well and um, I don't know whether or not it has any inference on what's going to happen at the weekend but it was a really interesting approach that I think will nullify Conte's Spurs all the time Yeah and, and I guess the reason I asked is because what it demonstrates is that what, exactly what you said, that Tuchel is able to put together a match plan which nullifies the precise strength of the opposition he's about to face. Um, and, and it makes me wonder what, what the defensive approach will be um, against a system like ours, which is much more about generating chaos than it is about getting your three elite players in space. But I, I guess it, it, it does raise some interesting questions. And, and maybe, you know, maybe it won't be much different from what we saw at Elland Road at the end of last season, where, where, you know, it didn't seem that they needed to do anything extraordinary except hold really good shape and really good structure when Leeds were attacking. But I just, I just thought it raised just, just an interesting point. Um, are we expecting Leeds to set up um, in the same way at the weekend, then, John. So the four-two-three-one, four-triple-two hybrid, or would you expect Leeds to try something different against a more elite team than we've faced so far this season? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Because what did we do last time? Did we go three-five-two? No, we went. We 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 came out four two three one, and then Dan James got sent off, and then it was just whatever. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it'd be interesting to see because this is the first real test from a big side, right? With this new system in place. Um, yeah, interesting hearing you talking about like Tuchel and the defensive side of things because I think that the big issue for Tuchel against us is going to be breaking us down if we're if we're um, sat in our block and that, that's why before I was talking about the slow build up from from Chelsea is that we've already talked at length on this episode about how the problems that Leeds have faced has generally been those situations where they're in defensive transition and teams can sort of destabilize them in that way whereas if and this is, I think, what we found under both Marsh last season at the end, the, the end of last season, but also um, uh, Bielsa as well, was that actually that slow build-up helps us out because if if there's going to be anything that causes us problems, it's going to be 
direct attacking um, by by really devastating players in counterattacks. Um, so it will be interesting to see whether or not um, Tuchel actually attacks us um, in in any sort of with any sort of directness with any sort of speed because I think those are the areas that that can cause us problems in terms of defensively. Yeah, I suspect that. Um, I mean, we know that Chelsea are they are good defensively. They're solid. They play a three. Four three, it's hard to break down, um, and they have players who are good enough in possession that they'll be able to play the ball out. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't anticipate our high press actually causing huge amounts of problems. Um, but yeah, I, that's that's what we do. So that's what we will do. Um, but yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how, for me, how we manage their attacks and whether or not it's just a case of they evade our counter-press, build up, but build up slowly and then aren't able to generate anything in the final third. Mm. And it's interesting because in the game at Ellen Road last season, um, we did defend pretty deep for a lot of the game, partly due to Dan James being sent off and, and the way that Chelsea dealt with that was by moving the ball from side to side a lot, if I recall correctly. So the, they kind of tried to build up but by use by shifting the ball across the pitch a lot and getting getting us to move around so again it'd be interesting to see uh, whether that happens again so um what do you expect the Leeds team to be John have you got any hunches about any changes or I guess I guess there's a question about whether Bamford will be even fit for the game um so what what do you make of the likely 11 yeah I guess if we go 4231 then we will have to replace Bamford um I guess Joe Gellhart is injured as well at the moment, or has been. So, um, do we see um, Rodrigo push forward as the as the last player? And then the question is, who's going to come in for Rodrigo? Um, mm, I, I don't know. What's mm, your take on this one? Mm. My hunch would be that um, Aronson will move to the ten, and James will play in one of the wing positions and Rodrigo would play up front. That would be the most logical way to do it um, for me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the way it'll go because we did see James up front um, for a while against Southampton. Although yeah, I mean, I agree with your sense Rodrigo. that it's going to be one of those, well, it's going to be a, some kind of iteration of those players, right? Um, not sure it'll do a huge yeah. amount of good, yeah. but you know, that's what it will, that will be the base constituents. Unless Sinistera yeah. is ready to come in but I, I wonder whether it might just be too soon for him to for him to start and whether we want to bring him on a bit later but I suspect it will be some iteration of that um, okay let's think a, a, in a little bit more detail about some of the tactical issues that, that we've touched on here uh, already John so at Ellen Road at the end of last season the Leeds press completely failed to trouble Chelsea in, in any way they spread they, they made the pitch big they spread Used, they um, managed to play around our press and, and wide of our press a lot of the time. So do you think there's any sense that we've seen enough improvement in Leeds off the ball um, to change that I think the, the press is is better now, but as you say, I mean, Thomas Tuchel has played in Germany as a, as a, well as a manager. He's managed in Germany. He's seen counter-pressing approaches. He's co- coached a side who were largely a counter-pressing side so he knows mm. what's at stake mm. he knows how to cause problems for those systems so I think that we'll see the same thing happening again which is uh, what we saw in the second half against Wolves like just the ability to make the pitch big have players who are press resistant have those build-up patterns ingrained anyway so you make it easier for yourself so you know where everyone is at uh, and as I've already said I think he's good at building up through the the first two thirds albeit in a in a slow way so yeah, like I said, I, the, the issue for me is 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 more to do with how much time they give us in terms of defensive transition. Um, because I think my personal opinion is that if Thomas Tuchel built a side that just broke at speed, they would Chelsea would be so much more dangerous under him. Mm. Mm. And and what do you think the correct approach from Leeds is? Do you think do you think we will go pressy, or do you think the correct approach would be to do what you've already suggested, which would be to play more? more of a low block, maybe more of a mid block, and then try and hit them in transition at various times when we can. How how do you, what do you think is the right approach against this Chelsea for our, our set of players? Yeah, probably that, probably, it's, it's hard to say, right? Because if you, if you sit back, and we saw this at the end of last season, right? In the games when we sat back, largely it felt as though we just absorbed, we just invited a lot of pressure over and over again. And 
We don't mm-hmm. have players with the ability on the ball to actually cause problems for teams that are well set up. So these these elite sides always have really good what we call rest defence, which is the ability to have their players in possession, um, def- in well, their defensive players in possession in structures that are really hard to break down. Um, and so I think that the issue becomes that if you sit deep mm-hmm. and you try and counter-attack, you, one, don't see the ball very much at all, and two, when you do, you try and hit the channels, go long, and these teams are just really, really good at defending those moments. We've obviously seen teams like Manchester City have problems like this cause for them in the Champions League, but in the Champions League, City are playing against elite sides who are able mm. to you know, destabilise those, those rest defence structures, whereas like, for us, I just think that they will just sort of ease through any counter-attack chances so it's a a tough one I think like the for me maybe the upside of our game is the press so you at least have to try that press um, because you know the press only needs to work Mm. a few times in order for a good chance to be generated Um, and that's why it's so weird watching us at the moment because you can't really you can't really talk about it in terms of dominance, as I said before, because it's not dominance. It's about whether or not things fall your way when you're pressing, whether or not fall, things fall your way when you're defending um, and sort of rolling that dice every time. So I think at least in this situation, the best chance that we would have is to try and destabilise them at the back and and cause chaotic situations which we can benefit from. And and of course, chaos ball can work, right, in in. In in any game, there there is always a chance that you'll get 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 some luck, that you'll get a bit of variance in your favour, um, and and I guess that's probably the best that we can realistically hope for in a game like this, isn't it? Is that, that something falls for us? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that during the pandemic, teams were less good in possession. I think, um, mm-hmm. and we definitely got an upside from that. The problem being that now. The teams are able to train full time, and they've had pre seasons, etc. Their build up players, I think, better than it's ever been. So I think even in our pre season, there was moments when Blackpool were building through our our high press. And there was moments when Brisbane Raw were able to just absorb pressure and then hit us on the counter. So uh, I I do think that the you know the, the part of the reason why I'm so negative mm. about Red Bull football is because I just think that as football is evolving teams are just getting better and better at countering that that sort of I mean it's it, it Red Bull football is all about market inefficiency so it's found this this thing which is oh you know we're playing a different way to everyone else and it can destabilize teams so they're not used to it and so we we get like a relative talent upside from the fact that we're doing something that no one else is really expecting and it's much easier for players to press who don't have talent than possess the ball and build it up and 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 generate chances in that way and the problem is I think that the modern football now at the highest level is just there's just too many talented teams too many smart managers who can who can build through those pressing moments and yeah as we said before like there's the, the talent level is so high that you're not able to press these players because they're just all so press resistant anyway so mm, yeah I, I agree. Uh, we had a couple of good questions from listeners specifically around Chelsea's width. So Wiggy says, just thinking of Reese James versus Pascal Jr. is giving me nightmares. He causes trouble last year, if I remember correctly. How can we help our fullbacks? And then Jamie, our good friend Jamie, asked, how can Marsh set the team up to stop Chelsea tearing us to shreds out wide without compromising the good things we've seen in attack so far this season? So I just wondered if you had any thoughts around how we manage Chelsea's width. Yeah, I, I think this all comes back to what I've already talked about at length, which is yeah. this idea that we are um, benefited by Chelsea's slow build-up. Um, so I think there'll be situations where um, there will be issues where these players come 1v1 against the relative respective fullbacks in our team. Um, and that will cause problems. But I don't think they're going to be of the level that people think, which is just... S- around huge amounts of space um, and and transitional moments. I think they will be more, we'll be sitting deep, they'll be possessing the ball, horseshoeing it around the back, and there'll be situations where they'll try and work it around the fullback, hit the byline and, and, and clip it in across the, the box on the floor. Um, so those will be the nervous moments for me, rather than this idea that you know Chelsea are just going to fly down the wing, take us all on and, and be left 1v1 with loads of space. So... Um, yeah, for me, this is a game about yeah. box defending rather than 
overall like defensive um, solidity from the front, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. So there, there, there are going to be moments when Chelsea get into situations which feel dangerous. And I suppose to a degree, it's about, like you say, how well we defend our area, how well we pick up uh, in the box, how how um, measured and calm we are able to clearly uh, clear the ball, how how then we're able to follow up and get in, get into good back into a good structure um, before Chelsea come in with the second wave. I think I think those are the sort of things which are going to decide how many goals we concede on the day, not not necessarily like individualism or, or any of that sort of thing. So. John, where do you think the game is going to be won? I think they'll be swinging the ball into the box a lot because they just run out of ideas in the final third, and they'll end up just crossing to Kai Havertz. And so, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be one for the defenders. If we can have our, our defenders clear those balls, then I think we'll largely be okay. Yeah, in those moments of transition, if there are any, essentially. So, um, yeah, in in terms of winning the game, you know, it's tough to win against teams like Chelsea, but I do think that the best chance that we have is for us to stop them from getting any good chances of their own. Um, and so that maybe will come at the expense of being particularly adventurous going forward ourselves. But I think aiming for a draw at this point is is going to be worth it. But the problem is, is that if you play for that sort of absorptive approach and then hitting them on the counter, like, as I've said, like you give them the, the, the front foot, you give them the ball, they'll, be dangerous at some point through that and I'm not sure that we'll have much joy counter-attacking so it's one of those ones where the system again you're sort of left thinking well maybe the best thing to do is just go for it like we we always do and hope that hope that Mm. we can sort of destabilize them in some way and then sit on the on the lead but if we can't sit on leads against Southampton I'm not full of hope that we'll be able to do the same against Chelsea it's it's a good point <laughs> excellent okay um well i think that brings us just about to the to the end of the podcast um so do check out your patreon feed there's a, a there's a great um video by hobsey uh, about the southampton game and um, we'll be making uh, as, as an, an under 21s podcast next week so that's uh, patreon.com forward slash asaw and other than that we will be back um, next week with a review of the Chelsea game and a preview of whatever game's next. I think it's Everton. Um, I think. Um, so yeah, we'll be we'll be back then. Um, but until then, John, it's been really nice to talk to you, mate. Um, really nice to do this with you again. Um, so don't leave it too yeah, long. Thanks before so you much. Hopefully, I haven't been too miserable for for the fans. Well, yeah, I I don't think so. I think I think people. Uh, you know, I, I call your I don't call it misery, John, I call it romanticized <laughs> realism when you do it. Um so okay, everyone, that's been really lovely to talk to you. See you again. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 